everybody. Welcome to Red Carpet Healthcare Solutions, private podcasters, uh, private practice podcasters. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Molly, and my co-host, Travis Bazell. And today we are here with um, a really super exciting guest for our second episode. Episode one, as you probably checked it out, was Dr. Adolf Lombardi. He was my fellowship director, awesome guy, awesome surgeon. Um, and an extremely successful private practice, um, what I would call a classical uh, setup for private practice. Very entrepreneurial, though. Um, started his own, you know, surgical hospital, then an ASC. Um, but tonight's guest is quite a bit different than that in the fact that his practice model is very, very unique. Um, something that I think is going to catch on and become much more popular over the, the years to come. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Daniel Paul. So welcome, okay. Dr. Paul. Yeah, Dr. Molly and Travis, thanks for uh, having me on. Of course. So as I was mentioning before, we kind of went live here. Um, and, and just call me Ryan, too, all right? Because uh, I'll probably okay, just, it, is Ryan. it you cool if I just call you Dan? You can call me Dan. Fine. Okay. Yeah, no, we leave the formalities behind. I'm okay with For that. sure. So, Dan, you know, before we got started recording here, we were just chatting a little bit um, about, you know, kind of the format and everything. But I think everybody really wants to kind of know, like, who is Dr. Daniel Paul? Like, where'd you grow up? Uh, all that kind of stuff, like the 30,000 foot view. Sure. So, I mean, um, I grew up in the Northeast in Connecticut, kind of tri-state area. Um, I had a bad skiing accident when I was 14, like uh, both bone on my right forearm and then bilateral femur and left tib fib. I skied into a tree um, at that time when I was 14. And so it was a lot of trauma. So I kind of went from, I uh, missed a lot of eighth grade that year. You know, I was pretty debilitated, but you know, through all the surgeries and everything, I was able to run track the following year. And I was like, this is pretty cool. Like, I think this is what I want to do. And I come from a family of engineers. So that was sort of the reason that I wanted to do orthopedics. And then kind of like most people, you know, head down to the grindstone, let's go. Um, so, you know, I went to college at NYU. That's where I met my wife. Uh, she's from Colorado, which is where we are now. Um, Went to medical school, University of Miami to get a little bit of sun and education, uh, which was good. Uh, and then I went to Toledo for my orthopedic surgery residency, which I did. Um, and I started a hand surgery fellowship and that's where things kind of went off the rails. So I quit that halfway through, which is, as you know, is not normally done. Um, it, it, it was not a positive educational experience for me. And, uh, so I left and uh, I didn't really know what to do. Um, I was like, you know, what am I going to do? I mean, I've been dragging my wife all over the country at this point. You know, I've dragged her to, you know, Florida, Ohio, whatnot. And, uh, you know, at the same time I was interviewing for jobs and I'm like, man, these jobs are just really bad. It was just some old senior partner telling me how much money he made in the early 90s. And like, you know, and then lowballing everybody else that came in. So I had a friend from Miami who started a house call cash pay practice. And I'm like, man, you know, this guy's happier than anybody else that I know. And he's doing better financially. Was he an orthopedic surgeon? So he did internal medicine. Okay. What'd you say? I was just asking if he was an orthopedic yeah. surgeon, but you said internal medicine. No, he's not. Not He wasn't. No, he, he, no, he wasn't. He's not. And um, I said, I don't know what this looks like for orthopedics, but I'm just going to go for it. So we moved into my in-law's basement in Colorado. And then I just went for it and that was about five years ago. So now I have my own practice. It's a very minimalist cash pay practice, um, but it's been good. So, so when did you first know that you wanted to, to go into orthopedic surgery? Was it related to your injury in eighth grade? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's common with most orthopods is there's some sort of injury or their dad's an orthopod. And for me, you know, it wasn't like an ACL playing lacrosse. I just get into a tree and broke a bunch of stuff. So <laughs> that after, you know, I come from a family of engineers. So that sort of made sense to me. And, you know, you make decisions when you're that age and they're not necessarily good ones. But that's what I decided to do. So that's 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 where I went. Well, it's, well it sounds like it's working out so far. So, <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because, I mean, obviously, uh, Ryan kind of beat me to the punch. But, you know, just kind of listening to your story and. You know, I've listened to a couple of different podcasts that you've been on and, and read, you know, some of the articles and things that, you know, you've released and, you know, kind of getting to the the why orthopedics thing. Right. And so, um, you know, just kind of curious, obviously, like with that injury and that, was it like the putting you back together part or like the, you know, it sounded like it was a pretty grueling recovery. You might be the only orthopedic surgeon that maybe didn't complete eighth grade, it sounds like, or missed a lot of it. <laughs> but uh, like once you... Yeah, I missed, I missed a chunk, but I mean, it's eighth grade, man. Like, you know, at the end of the day, who cares? Uh, you know, that's a stepping stone, probably, right? Yeah. So, I completed. I had a lot of M's and I's and all sorts of letters on your report card that you don't normally see. They were all there. So, um, but you know, I think like I never went back to art class like a day after that, you know. And then I went back like one day when I was like, you know, recovering, and she was like, "Where have you been? You got to stay here for detention." And I was like, "I can't. I have physical therapy after." And she's like, "I don't care." And then the nurse comes in and she's like, oh, he has to go to physical therapy. And I just, I never went back to art ever again. And I think I got like an incomplete and then made it to ninth grade. So it worked so out. So like, what was it about the injury or like that process that like drew you to orthopedics? Well, I thought it was cool. You know, it essentially gave me my life back. Sure. I mean, I, I was debilitated and then I went from that to, you know, being super functional again. And I said like, this is a pretty amazing thing to be able to do. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, like I said, you're 14 when you make these decisions. It's left a very big impression on me, you know, seeing the orthopedic doc, you know, coming in with my injuries and getting fixed. And I just thought it was cool. And I thought it was awesome. And, you know, there's no docs in my family. And that was sort of the impetus for doing it. That's cool. So, so kind of the, the elephant in the room question. I mean, I think that this is what, what's so unique about you as a guest is, um, I do have an element of cash pay with a concierge program in my practice, but your entire practice is based on cash pay with no insurers. Um, so at what point of your training career were you like, nah, I'm not doing this. Was it seeing all of your attendings through your residency? And you said your, your fellowship wasn't a great experience. Was it seeing their pain points, their frustrations? Uh, did you, when you first came out of the gates, were you just like, I'm doing this and um, there's no books for how to say, screw you to insurance companies and big hospital systems, but you, you kind of did it and, and this is your, your model. So how did that happen? Well, I mean, you know, a lot of us, the way we are, we're very methodical. We like to think things through and, you know, write them down. I'm certainly like that when I treat patients, but when you have sort of, look, I never planned on doing this model when I was in residency. I was very much planning on going, finishing my fellowship, going, I mean, there's no thought that I wouldn't finish my fellowship and then, you know, go work in the system somewhere and kind of right off into the sunset or at least what I thought. So, I mean, it was not like, a. it was sort of a desperation move, right? right? You know, because I've quit my fellowship. I've now moved to Colorado in a super saturated area for orthopods. 
and then just trying to rub sticks together to make things work. So it, it wasn't like, you know, I have a bunch of options on the table here. I mean, it was, I was almost kind of forced to do something like that. Um, and I think when you have these obstacles is when you get the most sort of creative, um, you know, solutions is, is when there's some obstacles there. So those are the obstacles that I had. Um, but I knew I couldn't take insurance because I would fail, right? I need five people per doc and, um, you know, I'm not going to get good contracts. I'm not going to do it as good as the big guys. And so that was never an option for me. I just knew that it wasn't sustainable or possible for me to start a practice, um, doing orthopedics in an area that's super saturated with orthopedics. So that was the different sort of angle. And then as I've, I've, I've done more of it, I've kind of figured out how to make it work. Um, but yeah, it was more of a desperation move really. Um, so that's kind of crazy. And that's kind of how I started. I mean, so if I'm like understanding this correctly too, like, I mean, you quit your fellowship and I mean, you're coming out of residency. I mean, and I mean, there was no hospital job. There was no, I had employment and I'd been doing this and just found that I didn't like it going through that process and talking to, you know, all these other, you know, opportunities or physicians, senior partners. And you mentioned a couple other things. It was just like, you knew that this was not going to be for you and transition to moving to Colorado Springs. Sounds like maybe your wife's family, you know, lives there. And so you make that transition and then out of, like you said, I mean, desperation, maybe the word that you used to describe it, you just go for it. This is like your first attempt. This is, you haven't done anything outside of this. That's correct. I mean, besides training, I mean, yeah. look, when I was looking for jobs before I quit my fellowship, they seemed just really bad. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It was like, take our entire level three call for our whole practice. Or like, here's a four month guarantee. I mean, these are, these are crappy jobs. Or, you know, I talked to a junior attending in one of the places I interviewed and I'm like, do you like it here? And he's like, it's getting better. And I'm like, what do you mean it's getting better? You know what I mean? Um, you can't live your whole life like that. So it was just kind of an existential crisis at the same time where I'm like, you know, this really isn't an option for me right now. It's not what I want to do, you know, and I'm going to live here come hell or high water. Right. Cause I've dragged my wife all over the country. So I said we were going to move back and we did. And look, when I was looking for a job, I was looking for somewhere along the front range. I wasn't married to Colorado Springs, but I mean, I was like, I couldn't find anything. So, I mean, I think it was just this, you know, thought the arrival fallacy of like, you know, once we finish training, like everything's going to be all right. And then you realize that it's not. Um, and then as I have pivoted away from insurance, I kind of gave me more of a bird's eye view. And I think it's one of the best career moves or probably the best career move I've ever made, realizing how bad it really is as I distanced myself from that. Um, so it was kind of calamity and desperation that started it. But as I do it more, I'm like, wow, well, that was a really bad system. Like, I'm glad that I never really got too involved in it. I mean, you know, if I had gone to a better fellowship and had a good experience, I mean, yeah. I might never, never started this practice. So, I mean, it's weird to think about it like that, but did you have a backup having plan? a bad experience? Were, were you kind of like, well, all right, I'm going all in on this. We're moving to Colorado Springs. I'm going to do a cash pay, you know, practice, but if this, I'm going to give it six months or a year, and if it doesn't work, then I'm going to go more to a, a classical setting. Did you have anything like that? Or were you just like, I'm going to make it work? No, no. I mean, it was pretty much like it had to work. I mean, I think when you're really into something like that, it's, it's easier to make it successful where if you don't have these things to fall back on or rely on, I didn't know if it was going to work. I thought it would work, but I had to make it work. So 
So, I mean, that, that's, that's sort of what happened. And look, I mean, a lot of that was unplanned initially. I mean, that's not what I initially planned, but you know, as you know, how life is, it sometimes throws you curveballs. So it's, it's how do you, how do you handle those curveballs? Um, you know, can you, can you see what the best move is? And, and it's hard. So I guess like kind of along the lines of like obstacles. So kind of where my head goes and obviously just like some of the logistics of, so, okay, day one, you know, you wake up and it's like, okay, I'm not going to take insurance. You know, I'm North Peak surgeon and, uh, I need, I need to see patients. Right. And so it's this whole cash pay model. It's a whole new concept. I mean, you know, I say over the last decade, it probably has gotten more popular with concierge medicine and that sort of stuff. But with what you're doing is a, a unique model. Like, where do you start? Like, are you going to referral sources? Are you taking out ads? Like, how do you even mar- market something like yeah. that? Like, how do, where do you go? Do you just start knocking on doors, asking people how they feel? Or, I mean, kind of, right? I mean, it's not exactly that, but I didn't know, right? So this is part of figuring it out through trial and error, right? I don't have a big budget here. So I'm able to get my LLC and website and business cards and a couple suits, right? You know, because I grew up in the Northeast. So I'm like, everybody wears suits. They don't in Colorado. So I learned that eventually. Um, Hopefully you just went to men's warehouse. You didn't spend a whole lot of money on them. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I got a nice suit, but you know, which I never wear. I don't think I've worn it in like a year or two, obviously. (laughs) So the more successful I get, the worse I dress. I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but... Amen. <laughs> you know, you see a guy walking around, you know, like a guy was working. He looks almost homeless. You're like, that guy must do really well. Um, well, you got plenty of that out in Colorado Springs. I was out there for our osteopathic orthopedic academy this past fall. And um, I was at the Broadmoor. Great place. But you go down into. Oh, yeah. There's some sketchy areas down there. Um, Colorado Springs yeah, there is, are is, is great. But like some of the smaller uh Masaga, what was the one that I was at that I just did not feel safe there? And there was a lot of homeless There's people. like a downtown park that has a good collection of them. Yeah. I mean, not as much as like, let's say Austin or somewhere in any major, major city, but you know, like anywhere else they're there. We have a lot of veterans here. So, I mean, I think sure. unfortunately that attracts them to that. Um, but yeah, so day one, I'll, I'll tell you exactly what I did day one. So day one, I get my bag. I got out all my stuff that I carry around. And I'm like, all right, well, what am I going to do? I'm like, all right, well, there's this hotel. It's not the Broadmoor. There's another one called the Antlers, which is like also very nice. And I'm like, oh, this will be great. They'll be like, you know, someone gets hurt. I can come see somebody there. And like, so I call them and I go there and like, man, they just wanted me to leave. They're like, who is this guy in the lobby? I gave him a bunch of cards. I'm sure they threw him in the garbage. So that was like day one. And I come home and I'm like, well, that was terrible. (laughs) I'm like, well, that's not the way to do it. That's not the way to do it. I mean, I have nowhere, nowhere, nothing to go on, you know? So There's then no I'm like, all right, day two, I'm like, I'm like, all right, let me try CrossFit gyms, right? Those guys always get hurt. So I go see some CrossFit gyms. I meet some of the owners of CrossFit gyms and like, they're super nice and they're super cool. And then I realized that I'm not going to get any referrals from them because for CrossFitters, all I'm going to do is tell them not to do CrossFit and that's bad. So you know, I was like, all right, that didn't work. And then over time, like with enough of that and networking and everything, I've sort of figured out like, okay, this person actually refers to me. And then like, all right, this person actually refers to me. Now I have a very good sense of like who actually refers patients and who doesn't. And over time I've leaned into those things and that's how I've gotten my referral going. I mean, I've also had some search engine optimization. There's a whole chunk of people that find me, but the more good work I do over a longer period of time, it's more word of mouth marketing. Well, Word of mouth marketing, while being slow, slower than anything else, it's uh, free and the most effective if you can wait it out. 
Yeah, when I first started um, private practice right out of fellowship in 2011, I was in Metro Detroit and um, I had three partners. I, I was not a partner. I, w- I was an employed physician of a private practice, not a hospital employed system. And I was a grinder. I was kind of like you were. And I was like, I'm going to get out there. And being an adult reconstruction surgeon, hip and knee replacement surgeon, I knew my target population. So I was going to all the senior centers and there was probably six or seven and, you know, a three to five mile radius from um, where I was stationed in Livonia, Michigan. I would go to the Greek church. I go to uh, the Italian American club and I do these seminars. I just educate on hip and knee arthritis and the um, options for that, you know, direct anterior minimally invasive. So I, I was my own kind of billboard. I was just out there talking with people, being very real. I'd go to Panera Bread. I'd sit down. I'd have nobody. And by the end, I'd have six to eight people standing around me, giving them business cards. I'd have models of hips and knees and implants and kind of just hear some coffee, you know, just sit down and let's just have a chat. And then it just, it just grew from that. So I completely agree that word of mouth is because people will trust you, right? Once you gain their trust. That's the key first step. Yeah. And then, you know, if they have a good experience with you, they're going to, you know, that's that for the person who referred them to you, they're going to like that. And then also they'll tell their friends or, you know, I give them a magnet when I see them and hopefully they put it on their fridge and something happens later on. They give me a call again. So um, I like the magnet better than the business card. I used to use business cards because like the magnet, it's it, business cards sometimes go in a pile and get lost, but the magnet can like, you know, sit somewhere where usually remains somewhat undisturbed. So that's what I use, but that's kind of what I did. And like I said, there's a lot of failures in the beginning with that stuff, but that's part of the process. So that's okay. And, but, but I learned from that and, you know, then over time, as I got busier, I don't really do too much networking at all anymore. Um, it's more, uh, I'll do meetings like, like high, high yield meetings I'll do for sure. But now I'm not, you know, going to these networking meetings and, you know, talking to someone who does roofing for an hour. I mean, which is what I used to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I'm maybe the terminology I'm using wrong, but it kind of sounds like, you know, kind of like grassroots marketing, right? It's kind of like start, you know, one, two, three patients. And then eventually, you know, you just kind of build and grow. And I think the thing that's unique that I am curious to hear more about is, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sure there's different dynamics to the practice, but it sounds like, you know, this, this concept of like mobile orthopedics, right? So easy orthopedics and having the ability to, you know, have an, you know, orthopedic surgeon come to your house to have this conversation with you about your ailment. I mean, I don't think it gets much more convenient than that at that point. Right. I mean, this whole idea, especially during COVID around, you know, getting things delivered to your home. I mean, grocery chain, all these, you know, everything is about convenience now in bringing things into the home. So, I mean, has that been kind of a sticking point for you? I mean, obviously, you, I, you kind of talked about like, you know, I didn't have an office. I didn't work for practice. So, I mean, can you talk to us a little bit more about kind of the, the mobile side of the business and going to patients? Sure. So when I first started, I was a hundred percent house calls and I would go all over the place. And for some people, it is really convenient. You know, like I saw a lady yesterday and she can't walk too well and she doesn't go see the doctor and I'm able to give her a couple knee steroid injections in her house. And she's super happy about that. She doesn't have to leave where she's sitting. Um, so initially, yeah, it was a lot of that. So what I found was over time, I would meet people in the community, mostly Kairos who are like, and, and Kairos tend to get it. They're, they're better business owners, I think, than most physicians because they have to be because 
there's not like an employed hospital job for chiropractors. So if they don't do it right, they'll be out of business. So I met with some of them in the, of them in the community and they're my best referral source, to be honest. And they say, hey, I'm treating this guy's spine, but he's got shoulder pain. You know, can you come to the office? He'll be here at 11. Can you come here, you know, at 1130 and treat him? And I say, sure. And so what happened over time is I did that with enough offices. So now I'm at like four or five offices. So now if I want to bring my own patient there, you know, I'm using an unused room. Sometimes I'm at lunch. They're not using it. And, and they don't charge me for that because I'm a value add when I'm there. So they get to market and say, well, there's an orthopedic surgeon I can call. He'll come to my office. You see me, you see him. He'll give you injections, whatever you need. And it ends up being a very symbiotic relationship. So now I'm probably like maybe 90% office and 10% house calls. I'll still, I still do them, but I mean, I'm still mobile. So, I mean, I still take the same bag, whether I go to someone's house or I go to an office, I have a little ultrasound with me, you know, so I can do what I want. Um, yeah, I was going to say, what's in the bag, you know, but I brought a cast dog with me too, or whatever, you know, what's that? in the bag. So the bag, it's kind of off to the side there. You can see the edge of it. So there's everything you would need for steroid injections. I have an ultrasound with a butterfly IQ. Um, I have everything to do suturing wounds with some suture kits and different sutures. I don't really use that too often. A ton of stuff for wound care, um, like sterile saline and like silver nitrate sticks and all that. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, it's some ace, some ace wraps and everything. If I need to cast or splint, I'll bring around a little cast or splint cart. I'll leave it in my car and that'll contain everything I need to cast or splint. I mean, you got to understand I'm a low volume practice. So before I see someone, I'm, I'm going to know whether, what, whether I need something or not. Like, it's not like I'm going to be surprised to need my cast saw. Like I know I need my cast saw. So that's, so I'll, I'll throw it in my that's car. kind of where my logistical brain goes. So you're seeing these people. So you're saying, so obviously this is transition from, you still do house calls, but then you've kind of developed these referral sources. Are they, are you kind of having like a conversation with the patient prior to them coming in and you kind of have an idea of what's going on? Is that where you work out like a cash fee schedule with them? Or is that worked out with the office? Cause you don't take insurance. So you're not in network with anyone. So, you know, are how, like, how does that work? So, yeah, we have upfront transparent cash pricing. So when a patient calls, we have that conversation with them upfront. And, you know, if you don't have insurance or you have a high deductible, a lot of times I am the most economical option for you. So we negotiate it. And if they want to do it, then we take a small deposit and then we see them and then they pay us, pay me the rest. Um, it's pretty simple, actually. Uh, the other offices don't do any office work for me. So I have a minimal footprint. So they're not booking anything for me. They're not, I mean, I clean my own rooms. I'm self-contained. I'm not using their EMR. I'm not using their office staff. I'm literally just using that room. Well, sometimes if I'm doing an injection on a female, I'll have another female come in the room with me. But besides that, it's it's very minimal. So that's why it creates such a symbiotic relationship. I, I don't, I'm my own medical assistant. You know what I mean? So the logistical side of my brain, because I, I started my own practice in 2018. It's a very, very high volume. Uh, started just as a, a mm -hmm. hip and knee replacement institute. That was literally what our name was, Whole Health uh, Joint Replacement Institute. And then it's grown to, we have five surgeons now and five mid-level providers. I have wow. 34 employees. So your overhead's here, my overhead's here, um, but still very successful. Yeah, I've got the burden of the insurance companies. And trust me, I think I, I share your, uh, I loved reading your LinkedIn title. It, was, it, it said, um, antagonist to, uh, health insurance companies, as well as, uh, trying, man. major conglomerate hospitals. And, and I'm believing I'm part of a, a surgical hospital. So logistically, 
Someone calls, um, and to me, every single patient that comes into my office, for me, I just do hip and ear replacements. That's it. They all get x-rays. So where are they getting x-rays? Are you writing them a script ahead of time? Are you mailing it to them? Email? How does that work? Gotcha. So half the time when I get referrals, and look, I, my, my surgeries are mostly upper extremity that I do, and I'm small stuff, right? Like in procedure rooms, because that cuts the overhead of the OR, moves the OR, like, facility fee out of the way. But anyways, but I see general. So I'll see spine, shoulder, hip, knee, foot, ankle. I really see all of it. Um, but a lot of times before I see them, sometimes they'll already have MRIs or x-rays done. The Cairo has been treating them. PT has been treating them. They have all this imaging done. So they get, they, they went to the hospital. They have all CT scans. So a lot of times they already have the imaging. If I need the imaging, I literally just create, I send an order over to the imaging center in town that has cash prices and they go get it. Like today, I saw a guy with a lateral malleolar fracture that I thought was stable. I'm like, we need weight-bearing x-rays. I just send the over, order over. They call him. He gets it. And I get the order. When it gets read, I'll call him. So I don't. I have one office that I can use immediate x-ray. Like I can take it myself if I really need it. I, if it's trauma, of course, I'll get that before I see them. But if it's chronic pain, you know, I almost treat it like you would a CT scan or MRI um, in the sense of like, let's get it and I'll call you after it gets done um, if I think it's necessary. But like I said, most of the time, a lot of times they have everything before I even see them because other people have done stuff already. So I just, I saw, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong. So I kind of heard you allude to like the imaging center having a cash price for something. So it, it, so like in your practice now, I know that obviously you're not accepting insurance, but how many patients would you say, you know, in terms of your patient population, do you see that do have insurance, but elect to not to use it to see you? versus going the traditional pathway. Like, are you, are you networking with those imaging places because the people that see you don't have insurance? It's just, if your deductible is high, sure. sometimes the worst way to go about it is to use your insurance. They actually save money by using cash. Every once in a while, I'll get someone who pays me cash and wants to use their insurance, which is fine. Whatever they want to do, I'll submit it. I mean, I found that imaging center because I needed it. And I, I was in the community and I know the people in the community and um, so I, I send them a good amount of stuff, but that was just part of the exploration process of, of trying to solve that problem. Cause initially I was like, well, I'll need mobile x-ray and I have used mobile x-ray before, but it's very limited. I mean, it's more expensive, but I've done it before where the guy shows up with his big x-ray machine and I'm there too. And he gets the x-rays in their house. And then, then I see him, you know? Um, but no, I mean, I'm in the cash world. So I try to have cash options available for all the people that I'm seeing because that's what they're looking for. So the, uh, again, you're, you're an orthopedic surgeon. I'm an orthopedic surgeon. You mentioned you do a lot of your stuff in a procedural room. Um, wh yeah. What are some of the bigger cases that you can't do in a procedural room? And how does that look? Say you go to, do you go to any ASCs? And if you do, how, I'm, I'm just curious if there's a young surgeon out there that's looking to kind of replicate your model would because I'm not going to get a professional fee from the insurance company. I'm going to get my cash payment for that the procedure that I'm going to do. But how does that work for the the facility fee? Are they able to still use their insurance um, and and have them pay the facility fee, but then they pay you cash? Um. Normally when I've done it, they've just, they don't have insurance or they, they or they'll just pay cash. So, and then they'll, they'll pay me all of it. And then I'll distribute to the implants and the facility fee and whatnot. You know, it, 
I was using an ASC before, but like I said, sometimes they would price people out of surgeries for some ridiculous stuff. So I've tried moving more things into a procedure room, almost sort of like a plastic surgeon would do mm-hmm. like at their office. And I think that's kind of the sweet spot for cash pay surgeries in, 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 for a certain uh, sense um, because uh, the facility fee is not too high. And so I can get paid, you know, if I charge three grand for a carpal tunnel, you know, I'm paying the facility a thousand. That's two thousand dollars I get for doing a carpal tunnel, which is probably on par what you're getting for knee and hip replacements, yeah. <laughs> which is messed up. Really, it's 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 totally screwed yeah. up. But I'm everybody's. I mean, they're paying less. It's just the insurance, the the parasitic insurance companies and other places aren't there to collect. Um, but no, but there's certainly, I mean, part of a practice like this is you're building solutions. So I don't always have the facilities to do what I want to do. So there's other, uh, you know, cash pay surgery centers. I'll have to send them to, cause I mean, I don't do everything like for a hip and knee. I mean, I'm sending out for that, you know, I have nowhere I could do it and I don't do them regularly. So I'm not going to, you know, there's people who are much better. We than can give you the pipeline where to send them. <laughs> Yeah, no, I appreciate it. When we send them. I mean, there's there's a lot of nuances to building a cash pay surgery practice. I think that the higher value is to also focus on the clinic visits as well, um, and with injections because you can you can be profitable, very profitable, off just doing that. Do you do any biologic stuff? I mean, I think that's a big thing, especially in the cash world. Yeah, I do a little bit of PRP, um, so I'll do that sometimes. Um, I use the M-Site kit. That, that's worked out pretty well. But it, honestly, I mean, with a cash based practice, like when people hear it, they think, all right, so this guy's just like, they imagine it like a normal orthopedic practice, but I'm just getting paid cash. And, and that's not really what it is, at least not how I've created it. It looks different. Or like, like a direct primary care doctor, um, like for family medicine doctor, like they don't really look like a, pri- a, a family medicine doctor in the system. So it's a lot of new value propositions. It's a whole new value area. So I've had to f- sort of figure that out, um, what that looks like. And there's just a lot of nuances to yeah. it. But yeah, I mean, certainly for things that insurance won't pay for, like biologics, then cash makes sense. So interesting too, like kind of just my like logistical brain goes. So I think there's like a misnomer too with, you know, participating with insurance companies. Okay. And where you're not participating with insurance companies in cash pay where, you know, there's a difference between like compliance, right? Cause like insurance companies, Medicare site visits, there's all these things that if you're participating in insurances that you have to, you know, essentially agree to. Right. And so by not participating, you know, with Medicare or United or or whatever, you know, the plan might be, but just taking cash, there's still obviously licensure things and, you know, being a physician, you know, licensed in the state that you're practicing and those sort of things. Like, are there any restrictions of like what you can and can't do in the home? Like you said, like injections, but like the needles disposals, like I'm just thinking just like from a liability standpoint, like, you know, how, like, how does that, how does that side of your business work in terms of like the liability stuff? So a lot of the regulations, as you correctly stated, are reimbursement related. Okay. okay? So the, the, the legislatures don't like to pass a lot of laws saying what doctors can or can't do. Um, so basically they do that by making reimbursement related. You can't do A, you can't do B, you can't do C. Once you lose all of that, like lose the health insurance companies, there's actually not a lot of legal things that you can't do. 
I mean, with house calls also, you got to imagine this isn't an old thing. People were doing house calls for a long time. So it's built into the culture, although people don't do it too much anymore. But, you know, you have your malpractice company, you talk to them, you let them know what you're doing and if they're okay with it. They cover you and you have systems and processes for disposing needles. I mean, you have home health people that go out and probably give people all sorts of insulin injections and drawing blood. So, I mean, there's no reason I can't do it either. Um, so I haven't, you know, I had that same thought when I started, but after I read through like basically all the state laws, there's really not a lot that prevents you from doing anything. I mean, I try to be a safe and stick to the standards of care as a medicine as to the best of my ability. But like, as you're thinking that there are also, there are people out there doing insane things. You know, as physicians, we get really worried about these things, rightfully so. But I mean, there's people out there like recommending just all sorts of snake oil and making a lot of money off of it. And so you have to look at the whole picture here. I mean, if you're doing the right thing, it's legal and it's covered by malpractice. And yeah, that, that was my next know, question what's is what's your medical malpractice look like? And do they give you a different rate because of your practice setup that you are lower volume and you're mainly doing stuff in procedural rooms? Like you're not going to have the same malpractice policy that I have. Are you? Well, first, no, I got part-time for a while, but you know how malpractice companies are. It's supposed to level out at five years and like, well, we, you know, so it depends on the state. I mean, it can be higher, um, but it could end up being that right now. It's not, it hasn't been the past five years. It's been pretty low for orthopedic doc, but I can't guarantee that it's not going to stay like that. I mean, but during that time I've been successful enough where it doesn't really matter, you know? Uh, you know, paying that and Colorado has some tort reform. So it, it, the malpractice rates here aren't crazy, but that could be a problem if you're like, let's say in Florida, I mean, we're, you might have to go bare if you're down there um, to make it work like the OB guys do. You know, I, I didn't want to let, you know, I, I legally have to have malpractice insurance and I want to have it, but I try not to let them, you know, I, I let them know everything I'm doing and they're just okay with it. So, I, I mean, I guess the other thing too, that kind of just curious, like, just in terms of like, you know, the, the patient pool that you're pulling from. So, I mean, obviously you've had like your word of mouth and, you know, the other referral sources that you've kind of like, you know, alluded to with various like chiropractors, physical therapists, that sort of stuff. Do you ever have like pushback from people on like doing the in-house stuff or do they almost kind of prefer that versus like meeting you somewhere? Um, it depends on the patient. Some people really love it. They think yeah. it's the best thing in the world. Uh there's other people who get weirded out by it, understandably so. So in that case, we'll see them in an office. So you you get a mixed bag. I mean, I'm just um, thinking about myself. I, you know, you have someone coming so to your house. Convenient to just have your doctor come to you. I'm thinking about it the other way. What do you ever screen them? Like I'm going into Buffalo Bill's house, and he's gonna take me down to the basement with the poodle. Like I've got some stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, we do more now. You know, like. Uh, there's some places I don't really like to go. Like if it's like a trailer park, I have nothing against trailer parks, yeah. but like, it's hard to find the building because they're, they're labeled weird sometimes. So that's not my favorite place. We've got military bases here. I don't want to go on base. It's going to take me 45 minutes to get through the gate. Um, but yeah, I mean, you got to kind of use your judgment. If you get weird vibes from somebody, then certainly, I mean, I've been some places that, uh, you know, weren't so great, not too much anymore, but, um, it ha it's happened. Yeah. <laughs> so I get the other thing just from like a billing perspective where my head goes. So again, from my understanding, so generally people with really high deductibles have low premiums, right? And so 
they set that up that way on purpose because they want to carry insurance and in, in case of like a catastrophic event, but they want to keep their premium as low as possible, right? So they're the ones with the $10,000 deductible. And so like in that case, do you ever worry about, so I know you said there's like a, you know, like a down payment or like a percentage fee, you know, that they pay before your visit or for your appointment with them. But like, do you have like net terms with them? Do you have issues getting paid? Is it due upon service? Like, how do you work that side of it? So we used to not charge anything for a deposit, but then what you have is you have people who schedule and they're like, well, I'll just schedule and I can always cancel. So then you end up with all these, cause my appointments are booked for a while. They're booked for an hour. Um, you know, I spend a long time with people. Um, so we found a lot of cancellations in that way. And it's very aggravating. So once you added, and that's about 10% of the cost of a visit. So once you add that deposit in, if they don't want to pay that and it goes towards the visit, right? This isn't money they're losing. Um, I know that they don't really want to see me. So they're not serious. So, you know, my kid needs a cast. I'm like, okay, fine. Like deposit, like, oh, my credit card's in my car. And like, okay. You know, the credit card's not in their car. They're, <laughs> they're not calling back. Um, generally speaking, people pay in full when I'm done. You know, they know the price beforehand and they can think about whether they want to do it or not. Um, payment plans, we'll do them. Not commonly. The way I do it is they have to pay 50% up front. Because if you can pay 50%, then I know you can pay another 50%. Because I got burned one time where I went to get a payment and she's like, oh, I need six payments of 60 bucks. And I was like, oh, no. And then you guess the rest of the story. Yeah. So I got payment one, but not two, three, four, five or six. So, I mean, you know, for some of these people, you know, they don't know their deductibles high. They don't have insurance. They don't know how much it's going to cost in the system. And to, to get an actual price, which I think is reasonable, it, it's a relief. So they're, 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 they're okay paying it. There's no surprises. Um with what we're doing here. And uh, I also want to make the comment that when I say cash based, you have to be really flexible with how you think about that. It's really not so much cash. It is cash, but it's not insurance billing. So I can do whatever I want as long as I don't have to interact with an insurance company. So that means I also do medical legal work, right? Cause I get paid up front for that or I can do personal injury work. Do I need to sit on a lien for two years and talk with a lawyer? Yeah. But you know what? That's a lot easier than working with an insurance company and I can still set my prices. So as long as you can set your prices and as long as you don't have to interact with an insurance company, it works. So, I mean, it's a big smattering of all that sort of stuff. So the next kind of topic um, I want to address is something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I'm sure it is to yours as well. I've, I've again, been following you on LinkedIn. Um, we see the statistics, we read them, we hear them. Um, physician suicides are now the leading um, occupation of any suicide in the United States. And 28.2% um, of physician suicides are actually orthopedic surgeons. Um, mm. You start to say, well, why? Right. And I think that COVID made things very, very bad and pushed the, I think that broke the, 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 the straw that was over the camel's back, so to speak. But I think it was heading that direction for a long period of time because just for what I do, for instance, if you look back 20, 25 years, I do a hip or knee replacement. Uh, the practice is going to get reimbursed about $8,000 roughly for that. Now that doesn't go into Ryan Molly's pocket. A lot of patients think that, right? But no, they have to understand that I have to pay all my employees. I have to pay all their benefits, um, everything that goes into that. I have to pay for their my provider CME. I have to do this. Um, it's expensive. Um, you know that. I, again, I've read your posts. So we've got this this pendulum that's swinging, 
where people are saying, well, private practice is too overwhelming, right? I've got this business that I never was taught how to do because we don't get taught that in medical school. And quite frankly, I think they don't want us to know how to do it because if you think about it, who in the world would go to the ER at two in the morning for somebody that was in a, a, a gunfight with somebody that has multiple shattered bones from bullets when you know you're probably not going to get paid because that person doesn't have any insurance, right? So it's like it, we've become these, um, I, I almost like it's expected because you went to medical school. Like we, we're not supposed to think business-wise and I'm the furthest thing from that. That doesn't mean that I've uh, that I don't give good care. That doesn't mean that I don't uh, put my patients first all the time, but we have to get paid for what we do. And when you look at today's reimbursement for say a hip or knee replacement for Medicare, it's about uh, just under $1,100. I mean, that's, that's highway robbery. And again, doesn't come to me, goes to the practice. At the end of the day, I may see $200 from that after all my overheads paid and our overhead goes up every year and our reimbursements are going down every year. So something has to change, whether you do what you're doing all cash, whether you do kind of what we started doing about three years ago, at least myself personally, I started a concierge program within my practice. About a third of my patients are, are concierge patients. But I guess if you're going to give advice to other young surgeons with this, this major, major problem of physician burnout, physician suicide, and complete, complete displeasure with their job. I mean, these people are hating their jobs. I don't know any employed surgeons that I talk to in this area that that like their job. What would you give them? What, what advice? So if it's a young surgeon, this is sort of what I'll say. I, I think at its core, the job is very enjoyable. The actual practice of medicine and helping people. It's all the other stuff that gets in the way. So when you take insurance, it seems stable. It seems stable. You know, you have a big patient flow. You have people coming in. You have stuff to do. But it's paradoxically unstable because exactly as you said, you don't control your overhead um, in the terms of essentially staff, right? Like all the hoops that all the coders, billers, prior auth, you know, pre-cert, whatever. That's huge, right? And insurance drives that up. And then at the same time, they're lowering your reimbursements, creating like an impossible squeeze. So it's actually a very unstable way to practice. And strangely, a cash-based practice, although different, is very stable because I can control my overhead. And I can also set my prices. So my overhead goes up. I can guess what? I can increase my prices. And if they're too high, people won't use it. Strangely enough, if they're too low, people also won't use it. Different story. <laughs> but um, I think the more cash bases you can get, the more stable you will. And like, say you want to work for someone, fine. But you could also do regenerative medicine. You can do medical legal work and do really well off that. You're saying and then that'll like a side give you hustle? More yeah. I mean, if you don't want to go all in like I yeah. did. I mean- or just, or just make, at the very least, make it so that if a cash pay patient comes to you, you have a way of actually treating them without throwing them into the insurance billing machine, you know, which, which a lot of practices do. I mean, they have people who have cash and they want to pay you cash for a hip or knee replacement, but they call your office and not your office specifically, but, you know, they'll have offices where they're like, well, we don't know how much it costs. We don't know. Leave us alone. Your cash pay. We don't care. And it's just, they're throwing money. Uh, we've so, got a lot of Amish that- in, in- my community and oh yeah so they they have they come in with buckets of it to to pay right. for their services and they, and they, they wanna, do the same thing at the hospital i've seen that yeah much I mean, so they um so i mean a lot it's just it's just the more cash bases you can get that are coming to you the more stable you'll be um 
And I think the other trap that a lot of orthodox fall into, a lot of docs, orthodox, is as soon as we get out and get that first salary, we get just massive, you know, massive house, really nice cars. And we tend to upgrade our lifestyle very significantly. And that it makes it really hard. You lose your leverage, you know? So if you can have some element of frugality in your life, I think that'll pay dividends in the sense of autonomy, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. You don't want to be, especially if you're in like my situation, a private practice where you've already got all this overhead, then you've got the overhead of your life, right? Your, your mortgage, your, your car payments, your this, your that, your private schools for your kids. Yeah. Those things can be great. And there may be a place in time, but you know, my uh, uh, program director, he always told me your first five years out in practice, live like a resident, right? L live on a resident salary. And we didn't do quite that, but we did not get that really, really big house right out of the gates. Um, and That's smart. Yeah. I mean, it was just, it was kind of scary thinking about that. I mean, you've already got all this debt that now you actually have to start paying back. Yeah. I mean, uh, I see so many docs do it and then they get that first good contract from the hospital because the hospital wants them there, makes them sign a non-compete. They buy all the good stuff. And then two years later, when that contract comes up, you know, the renegotiation is pretty bad and then they're miserable and they're stuck. So it's either stay at this job you hate or get out of Dodge, but you know, your kids are in school, your spouse is settled. I mean, that's not always an option. So I think these guys get stuck in these situations where they don't know what they can do, but work in this city, in this really crappy situation. And then that's where depression and unfortunately suicide comes in. I think it was one you of know, your the, posts. If it wasn't yours, it was somebody that, is very much in line with your thinking and my thinking that they, they talked about um, hospital administrators. Uh, and I totally believe this um, wanting you to go kind of all in and buy that really, really big house and join the country club and put your kids in the private schools so that they've got their hook in you now. Right. The oh, hook's yeah. I know what they're doing. I mean, I've heard about that. I haven't seen it. And I, I may have talked about it that, um, they'll, you come to town, they'll have you meet with a real estate agent, you know, at a, a prospective job and they'll show you the really nice houses, you know? Um, I think it's a trap in a way, really. They know what they're doing. They know if you have these huge payments that you're going to be stuck, but you know, if they see you as having a lot of leverage and other forms of money coming in and you know, you have a more modest lifestyle, they're going to know that they can't push you around as much. I mean, it, it's, it's autonomy. It's how much autonomy do you you know want to keep? If you buy a lot of stuff, you'll probably have less autonomy. You know, and I think it's interesting too, especially with what you guys are talking about, right? I mean, both private practice, I mean, obviously, you know, uniquely different in, you know, their own ways, but I think this is a part of the conversation where it's kind of starting, like you said, starting to shift because I mean, quite honestly, I mean, everything we're talking about is great, but you know, in a lot of parts of the country, like these options are limited, right? It's like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Right. Cause it, all, there's just university health system, this university health system, that, I mean, my options are pretty limited, right? Cause the private practice model is, I mean, especially over the last decade has shrunk, I mean, dramatically, right. I mean, I was kind of joking around with my primary care doctor who's getting ready to retire, you know, he's, you know, since transitioned to a health system, like most of them. And I was asking him like, man, I remember, you know, when I was just a kid and I would come and see him and I'm like, now you've kind of transitioned, you know, is it, you know, why just over the years having that conversation and, you know, he kind of jokingly said that, you know, the conversation was sort of like, well, we're just going to put a building up right next to yours and we'll see how it goes. And maybe the insurance that you accept now, maybe those 
people won't be able to come see you. So it's almost kind of like you get forced into it. You get bullied. I mean, and so in a lot of parts of the country, I mean, I think that's what's happening. So it sounds like at least these conversations that the pendulum is kind of starting to shift to, hey, you have options, right? And there are some outlets and, you know, some, you know, think points that you can definitely, you know, potentially go the other direction and here's how. But I think what I hear from both of you guys is it's a leap of faith. You really have to believe in it and want that to do it. It's not something you can do like, you know, half-heartedly. I think you have to go full steam ahead because there's a lot of risk associated with it because there's not a big, you know, system that's, you know, backing you, helping you, supporting you. It's just you, right? So I think that therein lies too a big part of, you know, the hesitation with a lot of people is yeah. the risk associated with it. Yeah, it's all about pain points, right? So with family medicine doctors, you know, it, be it became much crappier to practice family medicine than it did orthopedics a lot earlier, right? So they hit those pain points a really long time ago. So they figured out direct primary care. Now that's a tried and true model where um, there's, I think there's a handful where I live. I mean, they're all over the country. And these are docs that just said, I'm all out, man. I'm just membership model. And they've made it worse. A lot of ways they're farther ahead of any other specialty because they had to, because they were the first ones to have just a really terrible existence. So for orthopedics, I think it'll happen at some point. I don't know if enough guys, because I mean, when you do a model like mine, you have to hit a certain pain point to be pushed into it. Um, so I think guys are starting to hit that. Um, I think it'll happen more and more as, you know, private equity and hospitals essentially eat up everything and you're forced to work for one of those two entities, which are probably extremely similar uh, when it comes down to it. And, um, you know, re you know, reimbursements are going to be small and everyone's going to be angry and they're going to be asking someone reasonable volume for you to do because i mean a lot of surgeons what they're doing right now is like all right they knocked the reimbursement down from knee replacement by 200 bucks i need to do more knees and like they've sort of hit the limit of efficiency like you can only do so many i mean and then th and then that brought in like you know they used to people used to languish in as you know like rehab centers for like a week or two now they're going home same day they're doing outpatient opioid sparing not even doing physical therapy like there's not much more places to go. <laughs> I mean, the limits of efficiency are being reached, I think in a lot of ways. So, I mean, what, it's just, a, it seems like you're just playing a game where you don't set the rules. Yeah. And you can't and run on that no treadmill indefinitely and just increase the speed every year because we're getting older. Right. And there are physical demands to the job. There's mental demands, there's emotional demands. And I think if, if you're in any type of private practice model or have any curiosity or desire to, and by the way, um, just since we launched red carpet two days ago, I can't tell you how many, um, inbox messages I've gotten on LinkedIn and, uh, other platforms where people are reaching out to me like, Hey, how'd you do this? I had a 45 minute conversation with a, an orthopedic surgeon from, um, Nebraska yesterday. It was great. He's considering going into from employed to private practice and just wanted to know how I did it. Um, and, and I'm going to be the first guy to say like the way I did it is not the way that everybody should do it. Right. I kind of had a vision. Right. I knew that I wanted to eventually get into kind of that concierge space and eventually even to, into medical tourism, which is kind of what we're, we're doing with red carpet because you, you can't play that game with the insurance companies forever. Now I think it would be very challenging for me to do kind of what you do. Um, just because of the surgeries that I do. And um, I mean, I'm doing between eight and 900 joint replacements per year. I have no desire to do anymore and I can't physically do anymore. I mean, I'm <laughs> at my max. And, um, but 
to be able to do that, unless you're Rich Berger, who was extremely successful with that. But um, right, I was going to mention him. Yeah, so I think it's it's possible. It's possible. Not, I don't think you can replicate that practice. No, um, but but it is possible. And if you're not going to do something by thinking outside the box, and your solution button that you're going to push is, I just have to do more next year. You better get the antidepressants out, and you you know, you better have some long conversations with your counselor because you got some dark days ahead is all I can say. Yeah. I mean, this is the crazy thing about my practice. So, I mean, it's like the opposite of that. I mean, so if you think about it, I don't have an office, right? So I don't, my only staff member is me and my wife. So I'm not paying for office space or staff. I have to pay for supplies and malpractice and insurances and EMR, blah, 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 blah. But I think my cost of running a day is like, I don't know. I haven't calculated in a while, but it's maybe 60 to 100 bucks a day to run it. So it's something extremely low because that's what I I focus on the overhead. I mean, you know, you see a few people at $400 a pop or more, and then you factor in some surgeries and some medical legal work, personal injury, whatnot. I mean, it, it doesn't take too long to do pretty well with a pretty minimal amount of work. I mean, there is so much. It's really ridiculous how much wealth there is in the system. It just goes to lots of other entities. Yeah. Like, I think if you really want to get a good sense of it, you know, because we could put out numbers and statistics, whatever, but look at the Epic Medical Campus, um, the Epic EMR, and it'll probably make you want to vomit. It's like you get a sense of like how much wealth is actually there. So all I'm doing is I'm billing a much, 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 much less than most orthodox. I'm just collecting mostly all of it. Right. So that allows me to just work a lot less. And still do well. What do you um, do for your EMR? I, I I read something probably a year ago where it's pretty simplistic, but you don't have an EMR system, correct? No. So what I use is a I do and I don't. So most EMRs are be, uh, built for billing. They're billing machines in disguise, right? They turn you into a biller when you use them, and they're expensive because they need to rent these CPT codes from the AMA, and that's how the AMA makes a big chunk of its money. But if you're not doing that, I mean, what do you really need? You need a HIPAA compliant. You need something that's just HIPAA compliant and takes notes. So with Google, you can do Google Workspace and you can make it HIPAA compliant by signing a BAA. And um, that's what I did. So I just have templated Word documents and that, and I save them as PDFs and there's my notes, there's my orders, surgical reports. And no insurance company is saying, documents. we're not going to reimburse you if you don't move over to EMR by 2025 because you weren't participating with them. No, I don't care what they say. I mean, so it's not built for insurance billing. So if someone takes that bill and tries to submit it and get reimbursed, sometimes they have a hard time because I'm not, I'm writing them to be read. You know, I'm not writing them for click boxes, but actually on the attorney side, the attorneys really like them because the notes are meant to be read. So they hold up in a legal sense, um, pretty well, but you know, obviously not in an insurance sense. So, I mean, that cost me almost nothing. I pay $18 per user per month. I have two users. So $36 a month. Wow. Um, for the system that I use. And it's backed up by Google. It comes with all the Google products, makes those HIPAA compliant. There's something called a Google Vault. So all the files are on the cloud and saved in something called a vault. So if someone were to delete them, they would still be present. Um, So I have business documents on there as well. So there's a lot of things like that that I had to figure out um, through trial and error or luck. Uh, I've done the same thing. And that's honestly, sometimes I think when you learn the, the best lessons and make your biggest strides in terms of successes, you got to fall flat on your face every once in a while and be like, Oh, it happens. Whether it's, you know, like you mentioned, going to the hotel lobby and starting to hand out business cards and be like, well, that didn't work. Well, you figure out what works and what doesn't. 
So yeah, yeah, and I mean it happens. You know, like no shows for me are particularly devastating. It makes my blood boil. I have a very low no show rate, but it happens and it drives me bananas. So well, you know, stuff happens. You know, I guess the other thing it's just like been I've been racking my brain as we've been talking. The I guess the thing that like one of my takeaways from like your practice specifically that's interesting to me is like the transparency of it. Right. Like with, especially you're talking about the notes and all the other stuff, but just like the pricing. Like, so my background, I own, I co-own a DME and uh, a distributorship, which is how Dr. Molly and I, or Ryan and I met. And so, you know, we're dispensing braces and all these things. And so, I mean, I don't think people are really wrapping their heads around the fact that, yeah, they pay for this insurance. They have no idea what it covers, how much their fiscal responsibility is. They have no idea what reimburses for how much or to who or any of that stuff. Half these people have no idea what their deductible is. Um, they have no idea what their copay is. And, you know, as a, as a provider, it's just like, it's been pushed back onto us to, well, are you supposed to tell me what my, you know, what my responsibility is? It's like, I'm not your insurance company. It's your responsibility to figure out how much, you know, you owe or what your copay is or this and that and the other thing. You know, if you get a bill in the mail and it's, like you said, you have a high deductible and it's $500 because, you know, brace X was, that was the reimbursement, but you're hundred percent out of pocket. I mean, we get a ton of pushback on that. Have you ever tried to call an insurance company and ask them how much your responsibility is going to be for anything? It's a nightmare. So it's just like, I don't know. I, I just, I see the conversation that you guys are having and that we're having. And I see this space hopefully moving more into like just transparency. You've heard those horror stories of people get the bill from the hospital. It's like, they charged me $58 for a Band-Aid. And I don't know like how extreme or like, you know, dramatized that is, but you've heard that before because a lot of that pricing, it's not itemized. I mean, you don't see all behind the scene things that, you know, you've kind of alluded to, like in terms of like the wealth in the system. And it's kind of like they're hiding it in places. And so with oh, yeah. just like a cash crisis, it's like, hey, you're dealing with me. This is who you're paying, and this is what I'm going to do for you. And I just, I think it's interesting. I mean, I mean that's why we call it easy orthopedics, not because orthopedics is easy. Some surgeons are like, oh, this guy's saying orthopedics is easy. That's not <laughs> what I'm saying. The process is easy. So, I mean, you know, it's very straightforward. It doesn't need to be complicated. I mean, what do you really need? You need the patient. You need a, a, the doc. And then you really don't need a lot of other stuff. I mean, but we, we're so conditioned to think that you do. Um so it's just a crazy, insane system. But once you step out of it, I mean, the transparency and the simplicity, a lot of people really like that. Um, ha, and people are really happy with Dan, it. Dan, have you uh, explored you know, going to, you know, some of your not big, big, big employers uh, in the area, but maybe your 100 to 500 uh, employer uh, type of companies and said, hey, I could be your orthodox. Because I know trying to go across um, specialties here, but, you know, Cleveland Clinic, Walmart, cardiology, they've, they've kind of done that as becoming like your preferred, preferred provider and just kind of taking the insurance out of the mix. And I, I do hear a lot about that, that these mid-sized companies are looking to maybe get rid of their healthcare benefits and find relationships mm -hmm. with providers in the area, or maybe if they have to travel a little bit to just work out direct payment type contracts. H have you done that yet? Yeah, I've done that with one company through a direct primary care doc. And so they'll bounce me a couple surgeries or I'll go to their office and I'll see people there. Those contracts can be hard to get, but I, that's definitely so in that case, it's really awesome because the employer is saving money 
And the employer is like, well, they pay her and she pays me. But it's essentially a direct payment, but not coming from the person. It's coming from their employer. Right. The employer is happy about it because I think usually a lot of times the care is better and it's much more efficient and cost less because you're cutting out so many middlemen. So you can do that. I mean, it's hard as an ortho specialist to break into those sometimes. A lot of times you're having to kind of go off of a direct primary care doc who's already made inroads there. And one issue with direct primary care, I'm just telling you the difficulties I found with this because I've explored it a lot, is it's the best care I think you can get. And I use it for myself. So in the system, primary care docs refer out at the drop of the hat. You know, you've really got a lot of good referral sources. When you go to direct primary care, you get the other way around. So now they're keeping stuff they really shouldn't keep. You know, like your bimalleolar ankle fractures without getting weight-bearing x-rays. I've seen all sorts of stuff, blind SI joint injections. So a lot of times they're very hesitant to start adding add-on service for a musculoskeletal care because that's going to be added on to the employer. Not all of them, but that's certainly a struggle that I've encountered. And then they do very poorly with musculoskeletal cause containment because let's be honest, that's not where their area of expertise MRIs is on, on first-time knee pain. On everybody. Yeah, they don't write in stage right, osteoarthritis. You know, all sorts, right. All sorts of other stuff. You know, they're like, I think it's a Baker cyst. Let's get an MRI. And you're like, oh, that's not really. Anyways, you know, you know yeah. what I mean? I, so that's been the challenge I've had. I've had success with it, but I've also had more challenges with it. Um, and also trying to work with some of these other large direct primary care groups as being a consultant for them. They like the idea of it, but it's really hard to get someone to pull the trigger on that, even if I give them really good terms, because I think it's just this over, they don't know what they don't know a lot of times. And I think that causes some problems. So a weird sort of side problem that I've discovered kind of being in my own real world out here, but something to think about. But yeah, if you can get those direct contracts with companies, I mean, it can certainly be really good. What What about like the day in the life? Like Travis and I were talking about this beforehand, like, but could you give us like, what does Dr. Daniel Paul's week look like? Like, do you have a set schedule? Like, uh, for me, I'm in surgery Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I'm in clinic most Thursdays and Fridays. What does your week look like when you wake up? What do you like to do? Even non-work stuff. Like, do you, do you have a time that you work out? I would imagine your schedule is probably more flexible. Yeah. So my wife does all my booking. So she'll usually book the first patient at 10, which allows us to get the kids ready and usually get a workout in, in the morning, you know, like an efficient workout. And then, I don't know, we'll see like four or five people, sometimes more, sometimes less, sometimes medical legal work. Sometimes a couple are at one office, you know, maybe a house call, a couple at another office. Sometimes I bounce around. Sometimes I can stack them. Sometimes I can't. I mean, it just doesn't end up being a ton of work. Um, You know, like I said, I don't work with any hospital systems. I'm not on call. I don't work late nights. I don't work weekends. And it's hard not to work a weekend. You got to try not to work a weekend. So, I mean, there's really an abundance of free time. You know, if we want to go to the zoo on a Wednesday and my wife wants to go, she'll just clear it out and we'll go. Or if we want to take a long weekend, we'll just clear out that Friday or, you know, or if we take a week vacation, we can do it. So we take it halfway through one week. So, you know, we can take a a Thursday, Friday, Monday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday off and not actually miss any work. So you go on vacation and you have a patient that you did a carpal tunnel on. Um, and they, you're, you're out of the state and their wound busts open, you know, a week out. What's your backup for that? Do you have any relationships with ortho guys in the area or how does that get handled? Uh, well, I leave my phone on so we can always talk and have the conversation and just try to temporize it until I get back. It really hasn't happened that much. 
I'll get some questions. I mean, all my patients have my phone number, but um, they uh, I get rarely get calls. But we basically allow ourselves to be available to them. But if it was some super disaster, no, I don't really know what I would do. But it hasn't happened. I mean, anytime you're building a system like that, you're not going to have perfect solutions to everything. So you know. Yeah, I mean, there's always an ER, right? Like if um, if I have right. a patient, I mean, I'm not an emergency service, yeah. right? And they they know that. So if it's a true emergency, I try not to steer people there. But you know, if you think someone has a DVT or something, I mean, then they got to go. Mm-hmm. What else, Trav? No, I mean, I just keep thinking about kind of going back to this whole concept of like cash pay, which I mean, it's kind of amazing that you've taken this concept and kind of your description of kind of feeling forced into it or like, you know, out of desperation. And I mean, for I think what you experienced in the conversations that you were having, I mean, you know, you were kind of commenting that your your colleague in Florida seemed like he was the happiest guy you know, that, you know, it sounds like your quality of life is pretty good. I mean, you know, just in terms of, yeah, that, I mean, see. you kind of, and again, I mean, I think the other part of this too is, is like, obviously, you know, you've set up your financial parameters, right? So, you know, you've, it's, you know, I'm sure that you do the same thing in your personal life you do in your business, you know, in terms of, okay, we have fixed costs. This is, how, you know, what the budget is for the house or this or that. Cause you know, once you get all of that overhead, then you lose a little bit more control of your autonomy, right? Because you're kind of, you know, stuck with, okay, well, I have to see all these people because I need to make this amount of money to pay for A, B, and C, right? I mean, I don't know if you can kind of speak to that from your, you know, your personal life and, you know, how that affects the business and that back and forth, right? Because you've set up a system with the autonomy that you have that works for you. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like you can't really put a price on the autonomy that you get. I mean, you don't get that time back. I mean, it's really quite wonderful to be able to practice how I want to practice, right? Like nobody tells me what to do. If I order an MRI, it just gets done. Cash pay it just gets done. Um, it's it's hard to put a price on that. But yeah, part of the autonomy is controlling your costs. And like we talked about earlier, if you have extremely high personal costs, you're going to have a tough time being autonomous because you're going to need to support all that. And it puts you in a low leverage position personally, which will put you in a low leverage position in the world of business. So the more you can be mindful of that, I, I think the better it is. But I mean, this model I'm doing, it's really not a new model. It's actually a very old model, but it still works, you know, with a modern touch. I mean, you just have to remove all that stuff. I mean, it is a leap of faith. And yeah, I'm, I'm figuring things out as I go, but, you know, I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And the quality of life is extremely high. Um, and I think it's a, it's a mindset yeah. thing too, right? I mean, that's just kind of what I'm hearing from you, right? Like just kind of the mindset of like, you know, I'm not going to engage with these conversations with these health systems or these insurance companies. This is the way that I want to practice. These are the things I want to see, the things I want to treat. This is how I want to do it. I'm not going to ask permission to do that. Right. And so I think it's a mindset thing because for me, I think the biggest hurdle or the biggest obstacle, and I think this is in anything in life though, it's, it's a culture shift too, because, you know, growing up, anyone that, you know, I knew who's regardless of you know, orthopedic surgeon, cardiologist, primary care, whatever it was, it was just like, if you had DR in front of your name, the perception is, is that you're rich. You have unlimited funds. You're just wealthy and you went to school forever and you're a doctor. And so life is good. And I think that, you know, the culture is shifting where there's more accessibility to 
things, this conversation, other conversation I know that you've had and, you know, other guys in the industry that are, you know, having, you know, the various conversations on podcasts and, you know, there's just more content, right? More information to where you're realizing it's not real. There, there is so many misperceptions out there. Like when I talk to my patients about like our concierge program and we talk about the fees and this and that, and I, you know, I used to get into kind of the history of reimbursement and what it is now, but before I, I tell them, I would used to ask them, what do they think? If, if we used to get paid, get paid $8,000 20 years ago, what do you think we'd get paid today? They're all like, Oh gosh, you know, it, the, it was never less than 25,000 and it was sometimes 200,000. And I'm just like, boy, uh, yeah, I wish you were even partially correct. And then when I tell them they're almost pissed off when they realize what the insurance companies are paying us. Cause they're like, how is that even legal? I'm like, that's a great question. Um, I wish I could answer it for you, but, um, I guess without going into your financial personal, I, I don't want to know that. And I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable position, but you know, orthopedic surgeons typically on average make this with your model. Are you financially around that? Uh, I mean, again, not talking about your autonomy because that you can't put a price tag on that. And that's why, because I went from employed my second, third years of, of my, my practice, I was hospital employed. It was the worst two years of my life. And I actually took a 400% pay cut my fourth year to go back into private practice because I was the worst employee ever. <laughs> Yeah, me too, man. Um, no, I'm certainly in the ballpark. I mean, not when I started by any means, right. you know what I mean? But yeah, now for sure. And I mean, the revenue increases a lot each year as I get busier. And like I said, I don't feel like I'm filled out or working a lot. But I think the way I do it, if you can fully fill it out, you'll do you'll you'll be at the high end, the very high end of what an orthopedic surgeon makes on average. Um, but again, it takes a long time to build it, build it and fill it out, you know, so. But did you ever during that five year period were you ever like, oh, man, I don't know if this is going to work or did it was it six months where you're like, I think this is really going to work. I mean, man, can you go back? Can you remember? It's hard. It was such a time of desperation. So, I mean, when I started, I made like nothing. I think I made five hundred dollars my first quarter and I was lucky to make that, you know, because I'm just figuring out, like, where am I going to go see people? And then it went up a lot from there. But uh I just, I don't know. I, I didn't think, I tried not to think about it too much. I didn't know what else I was going to do. I just had to keep going. I, it's, I know it sounds kind of crazy, but you know, you, with any business that you start, I mean, it's, it's very common not to, you know, you don't have money for a yeah. while. Like you're going to be poor for a bit. Like, you know, I, I, even though there was money in the business and I would take it out, I think it was two years before I started drawing like a regular salary, but now I have regular salary with distribution. So, I mean, you can't really get to that point without going through the previous point of, of not having money, you know? And I think that is what also, if you spend too much personally, you don't have the leverage to do something like this. Um, but no, I mean, the financials, they, they work and they make sense. I mean, for me, it's good. So you're obviously a risk taker. Um, I, I am myself. Yes, so, I mean, like, have you always been that way? Like, is that just like your Daniel Paul's personality? Um, I don't, I mean, to be successful in any business, you need a certain risk, you need to be able to take risk and have a certain amount of creativity. So I don't think I was ever really a big risk taker in that sort of way. Um, it almost seemed like more of a risk to, to not do it, if that makes any sense. 
yeah uh, to just stay in that gravity it's like kind of got my head out of the water i was like oh this is really really bad so i mean in a way it was less of a risk i mean even as crazy as that sounds um but i think some of the biggest risks is just kind of going in and just grinding away for years on end. you know i just want to thank you because you're you're an inspiration to myself i think you're um becoming more and more of an inspiration to other I don't even want to say younger orthopedic surgeons because I think there's quite a few senior orthopedic surgeons that are looking at what you're doing and they're saying, what the heck have I done for 20, 30 years of my practice? And is there a way to go back? Right. And I almost feel like they may feel like they're so far in. It's almost like a marriage that's not working, but you're like, I don't want to leave because it's I'm, I'm too committed either financially or this or that, but um, keep up it, keep it up, man. I mean, you're, you're, you're killing it. I uh, love following your stuff on LinkedIn and I'm a huge fan. Thanks. No, I appreciate you having me on. I did create a course to replicate my practice because I got so many requests. Yeah, I was going to ask how yeah, we can get in touch with you. And, I was going to say, like, do yeah, you have so, anything going on? I mean, on, on LinkedIn, share? you can find me. My website's easyorthopedics.com. On YouTube, well, YouTube is more informational channels, not really so much for other docs. And then insurancefreemedicalpractice.com is where I put my course, which shows it gives you 35 CME credits and shows you how to basically replicate exactly what I'm doing. Um, so Jay, so the guy that edits keep... these podcasts, he's really great about that stuff. So when he reaches out to you, if you can give all your contact info, he'll actually put sure, it like sure right thing. here on the screen so that people can see it. Okay, perfect. And um, yeah, and like I'm not trying to hard sell anybody on it, but again, like if you have a lot of questions about what I did, I mean, like I put it all out there because um, I, I get a lot because you know it's quite different, I guess. Um, but yeah, I hope somebody copies my model. I hope somebody else does this too. So there, we can start creating an ecosystem outside of the current system because family med docs have done it. I, I think we have to start or we should it'd be good for us to start doing it as well. Yeah, I think it's just a matter of time. I mean, even like what we're doing with the concierge program and and things like that, like the traction just in uh, a couple of days. I mean, people know that I've been doing it for, for years and they would just kind of call me or ask me stuff. But now it's like out there. And, and I'm sure similar to yourself, people are reaching out to you all the time. Like, how'd you do this? And, um, like I said, I actually enjoy it. Uh, having that conversation with a young orthopedic surgeon yesterday, it was kind of like, you're obviously passionate about what you do. I am extremely passionate about what I do. It's not just my occupation. It's my, it's my purpose here in, in terms of helping society and, um, giving back to other orthopedic surgeons, just like that knowledge so that they can hopefully enjoy what they do. Cause I mean, we spent like, I spent 20 years in school learning how to do this. So it'd be horrible That's to hate my job. A lot of them do, man. <laughs> it's just tough. And it's just cause they don't, they can't practice it how they want. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like the spirit of entrepreneurship. So it's just like, you know, nice to get with a couple of guys who are like-minded and trying to do things a little bit differently and kind of go outside of, I guess, kind of, you know, what they expect you to do. Right. And so, you know, veering left when they want you to turn right. And, um, it sounds like it's working. So that's awesome. Daniel, we're going to be most likely putting a course on later this year. Uh, would love to even have you participate in some way, shape or fashion, whether you're in person virtually, but it's about this kind of stuff, like how to build a, a private practice. And, and maybe we could have a sub section of, um, you know, how do you do a, a purely cash pay uh, practice. And, um, I don't want to put you on the spot, but just a little bug in the ear that maybe that yeah, invitation will be coming. Send me the details. We'll see if we can work it out. Okay. Sweet. Well, thanks again, Daniel. Yeah. Appreciate it. And, um, 
I know that uh, the viewers out there are going to really like this episode because this is some great, great content. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. Thanks, Tom. You bet. Appreciate it. Have a great night. Have a good one. You too. All right, take care. See ya. Even good insurance is bad. I mean, yeah, it's almost a, it's pretty much a scam. I don't even carry it for myself. I just use a health share. I don't even. I was going to ask you that. I didn't really want to do that on the on the podcast, but yeah, just no, you and your family. No, I don't carry it. Use a health share. We're healthy. It works fine. Had the birth of our daughter with it. Got paid. What does that look I mean, like? I had to float a bunch of bills. Um, so you're functionally uninsured to wherever you're going. So you're essentially self-pay and you negotiate cash prices and discounted cash prices. And then you have to pay them. And while you pay them, you submit it to the health share. And then the health share will reimburse you for what you spent. So I floated like for my daughter's birth, I had to get like cash discount for the ob for the hospital, for the epidural, for all that stuff. And I think I floated like $13,000 through and then I got paid back all of it. Really? $13,000. But you can do payment plans. You just have to be careful how you do it. And you got to make sure you're using a good health share because they're not all equal. So what what company do you use for health share? I use Sidera before I use CH Ministries, but they kind of got expensive. Sidera boots people off at 65, so they have a lower risk pool. Exactly. So I think I'm only paying like 460 a month for that. And I think I put my deductible. It's not really deductible, but it is. I like $2,500. So it's not like it adds up for the year. It'd be per incident. So, you know, if I break my leg and go to the hospital, I'll still have to pay 2,500, but it's a lot of legwork on my part, but you can, there's no networks. You can go anywhere in country, out of country. doesn't matter. And then if you broke your leg again, six months later, you'd have to pay another 2,500. I'd pay another 2,500. And I'd have to again, collect all the bills, make sure I get cash discounts, collect them, submit them. And you know, they'll help you if you need with that. But so it's, it's, it's not like, here's my card, whatever. I mean, I'm much more involved in the process, but it truly is catastrophic coverage. So, but like in that third, uh, but they don't cover pre-existing for a few years, you know, they don't cover any medications. So it's not for everybody. Yeah. I just kind of curious. Cause like that number you threw out. So obviously this isn't like going to be on the podcast, but so my wife and I, our four-year-old is an IVF baby. So we had okay. four embryos. He was the first transfer. The other three didn't take. So we're going through that process again. So egg retrieval. So, you know, full go to, you know, end result, we're doing it all over again and nothing's covered by insurance, the medication, go under anesthesia, egg retrieval, the whole nine, right? It's like way more than the number you just said to actually have a baby. Yeah. The 13 grand, we had like a, you know, uncomplicated vaginal birth, you know, something like yeah, everything, minimal, but I mean, and those prices were discounted because I, I paid them. Like, I mean, I, I went to the lady's office in the hospital and we got the number in advance. And I think I paid like five grand. Like I wrote a check while I was there. Um, you know, then it's collecting all the other annoying bills Yeah. and they're, you know, they're, they're, they were like a St. Francis. So they have some element of charitable thing buried somewhere in there. Maybe.